as you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the first minor prophet we have in the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, that we've been walking through over the last month or so, and we come to our final study tonight as we want to look at chapters 12 through 14 uh, together. And what I want to do to uh, get us going is read simply verses 2 through 6, which represents, again, a a summary of of God's issues with his people and even the hope that he sets out before them, which comes in verse 6. So it gives us a sense of where we're going in the whole sweep of the chapters tonight. So let me read that and then pray and we'll begin. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you now through his perfect word. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob According to his ways, he will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, Return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would help us this night to hold fast to your word of truth, that we would not only receive your word with meekness, but by the Spirit's power, we would keep it in our lives, observing its ways, observing your commands. And responded even to your grace that's ours in Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My dad has a very loud whistle. And there was a short period of my life where I could keenly hear that whistle more than any other noise that may have been on the skies at the time. There was this short period of time where we lived out of Texas as a family, something like less than a year. And we lived in a neighborhood where the homes were much more spread out than the type of neighborhoods we had lived in previously. And so as is common for kids to do after the schoolwork was done, we would be out playing in the neighborhood in the afternoon waiting for dinner to start. And because we were more spread out, we would often be out of sight. But we were never out of sound because what would happen is when dinner came, dad would normally stand on the front porch and then a a three-note whistle would pierce through the neighborhood skies and we were expected not just to hear it, but immediately pack up what we were doing and return home. And the reason I, I tell you that is because where we come to the end of Hosea tonight, is that the Lord is going to whistle forth in a piercing way through his word, and it's nothing more than a gracious whistling whistling for his people to come all the way home. Now what you need to notice is that the simple theme that's before us tonight is one that's summarized with the word return. Fifteen times in Hosea's 14 chapters, this word shows up. And more often than not, it shows up in this final cycle than all the ones that came before. 
So if you'll notice, let me just show you where it arrives in our text. If you look again, chapter 12, verse 6. Simply, the encouragement is, so by the help of your God, return. And if you glance over to chapter 14, which represents the promise section of this cycle, notice verse 1, 2, and 7. Verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord. Verse 7, they shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. And kids, whenever you hear God's word talk about returning, you'll find it so powerfully preached in the prophets. What you're hearing the prophet call you to is nothing more than just repentance. I hope you know that even the word itself for repent, it just pictures turning. You you turn away from sin and you turn to God in faith and repentance. And what the Lord is doing here at the end of Hosea's ministry recorded in scripture in 8th century BC, he's yet again going to tell Israel because it's another cycle. In the first two chapters, here is the doom, here is the judgment that's going to come upon you. And here's the reasons why you deserve it. But because they are his beloved people, chosen according to the covenant, that's not going to be their end, as has happened already in the previous two cycles, that, that final part of the cycle is going to be a, a promise of, of restoration. And so what I'm going to try to bring before your conscience and hearts tonight is simply the theme of return to God. Uh, that's all you need to hear from Hosea's final ministry to you through this wonderful book. It is a call to every single person hearing tonight, return to God. I don't know, of course, what your week looked like, but I dare say it's quite likely that many of you sit in here tonight and you have yet this week to return to God from the sins that you cultivated and cherished over the last few days. And what you're going to want to see along the way in chapters 12 and 13 is, of course, the bad news of Hosea's typical cycle, which I'm just simply summarizing with the word of ruin. Uh, They're going to be ruined by God, is what the text says. And then what we find in chapter 14 is that there's restoration by God, or restoration to God, however you want to think about it. And so what we want to see cultivating through this text in our hearts is something even this old preacher named Philip Henry once said. He he was a preacher of the gospel, so he he told his family once, if I die in the pulpit, I want to die preaching repentance. If I die outside of the pulpit, I want to die practicing repentance. Because if you know your Bible well, repentance is the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end of life in Jesus Christ. And I want to show you not only why you must repent, but even the grace and glory and promise that belongs to those who do return to the Lord. So we're going to see in verse 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12 and 13, the ruin that comes from God for Israel's sin. Simply look at verse 2 of chapter 12 once again. It tells us the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Uh, We've mentioned in recent weeks how previous parts of Hosea's ministry has used this word of controversy, which you can translate as the word charge. So, so much of Hosea's ministry is charged through with this kind of courtroom-like situation and setting. It's as though God, through his prophet Hosea, is bringing his people to court, his heavenly bar, and he's going to sue them according to their breaches uh, of his covenant with them. And what he's going to do, actually, in chapter 12 is, is call upon two simple lessons from history. 
So what I want to do is show you from chapters 12 and 13 three reasons why God is going to bring ruin upon them. And even the fourth part is I want to show you the way he depicts that ruin. So first of all, it's as though God says to his people in verses 3 through 5, you have not lived up to your name. This is the nation of Israel. And you'll see, if you just glance at verse 3 and 4, what is he doing? But in some way, quite hasty way, summarizing the history of the patriarch named Jacob. And then you see in verse 4, he alludes to this wonderful event in the book of Genesis where you might know, children, Jacob wrestled with the Lord's angel all night long. And do you remember what happened as a result of that wrestling? His name was changed from Jacob to Israel, which was meant to depict something of his new life under the Lord. He used to strive with men, deception, all kinds of iniquity. And now, by virtue of the name Israel, he's one who strove with God. It's his preoccupation has changed in his sinful deception to the way in which he's now clinging to the Lord in his petition. But the problem is for Israel is they're not living up to the name Israel. They're, they're not people interested in striving with God in prayer and worship. You see, we're told even at the end of verse 4, end of verse 5, he met with God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us, the Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. And so he commands them, doesn't he, in verse 6, return, live up to your name. And I trust that you know that those of you who have taken the name of Jesus Christ, those of you that have been baptized, you of course have taken on the name of the triune God. And I wonder if there are ways in which you're not living up to that name and might need to return to the Lord even this night. So he says, you have not lived up to your name. And secondly, he switches now from the lesson of, of Jacob to a lesson of, of Moses saying, you have not listened to my word. Because notice what we find in verse 9 of chapter 12. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. You know, students, if you're familiar with your Bible and you see that phrase there at the beginning of verse 9, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Every Israelite living in the 8th century BC should have known exactly where that language came from because there's something like a preamble in the religious experience. Doesn't it sound a lot like the preamble to the Ten Commandments, these ten words that were given to God's people? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And what he's saying is, is I'm going to cast you out into the wilderness because of your sin. And what he's amplifying here, just as the people of Israel did not listen to the prophet named Moses, so you, my people, have not listened to my word through my prophets. Look at verse 10. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions. Through the prophets, gave parables. Verse 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he guarded. Yet Ephraim, verse 14, has given bitter provocation. The Lord will leave his blood guilt upon him and repay him for his disgraceful deeds. They have not listened to God's word. It reminds me of this a story that I found from the pen of an old preacher named Thomas Goodwin. He once went to a church and it was pastored by 
The only thing that's come down to us in history is his last name, Mr. Rogers. And he was there on a Sunday morning when Mr. Rogers was preaching, and evidently he thought that his people were not listening to God's word. They, they weren't valuing God's truth. And so what he did along the way in the sermon, Mr. Rogers, as Thomas Goodwin is in the back of the room in attendance, he, he began to personate God, uh, saying this, Well, I've trusted you for so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to look into it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And then in a, I think a very sincere, yet somewhat theatrical way, he did, Mr. Rogers, took the Bible and began to walk out of the room. And then before he got out of the room, it's as though he switched roles. And he began to represent the people by crying out that the Lord would not take his word from them that they would repent of the ways in which they've been hard-hearted and hard-hearing, and they would again return to his truth. And as Thomas Goodwin reflected on this uh, very moving experience in the church, he said that quite quickly, what you could hear throughout the room were sobs of repentant tears, because they knew they had not listened to God's word. Maybe you too haven't listened to God's word. And so the text goes on to say, thirdly, in chapter 13, you have not looked to me. The marriage metaphor returns. Look at verse 4 of chapter 13. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. They had just enough God to get out of Egypt. And then once they were safe and secure, it was as though they didn't need him anymore. They have not looked to him in faith. And aren't there so many people today that's the exact same thing? You've gotten your fill of God in your heart. And then things begin to become safe, more secure. You might as well think, well, I don't need him anymore but doesn't he say if you glance again at the end of verse 4 besides me there is no savior you have not lived up to your name israel you have not listened to my word israel you have not looked to me israel so they're going to be ruined by god and the way in which god's going to depict that ruin is by calling on seemingly the most vaunted predators from the animal kingdom to illustrate the wrath-filled ruin that will come upon them. Look at verse 7 and following. He says, So, because they forgot me, I am a lamb to them like a lion. I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel. For you are against me, against your helper. And I can picture almost Hosea, if you would imaginatively picture this with me, teaching a Sunday school class in ancient Israel, trying to get this lesson across to children about, about the danger of forgetting God, not listening to God, not living up to your name, not looking to God. This is almost as though he goes around the room Hey, Josiah, what animal do you fear the most? 
Answer comes a lion. But God is like a lion who will destroy you. And then he says to Abraham, Hey, what's your most terrifying animal? A mother bear. Well, God is like a mother bear who destroys those that come against her cubs. And he just begins to teach the lesson in the most striking way. And as one commentator says at the end of chapter 13, we get to the climax of doom. Look at verse 16. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. It couldn't be more clear, could it? The righteous ruin that comes from God upon those who do not love him, know him, look to him. And so the cycle comes to its place of completion, chapter 14, as this is not just the end of Israel's story, is that there's going to be ruin from God in, in the exile, but there's going to be restoration to God as they return to him. I was in this doctoral seminar at the seminary many years ago when I was doing some seminary work. And as these things so often go, what you do for hours on end is you present papers that you've written or you guide discussions on a particular topic. And I was in a class where one of the guided discussions on an afternoon was on this very famous 20th century book that's simply titled The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is nothing more than a meditation on that story, but through the lens of a painting that Rembrandt did on the story. And we were only like 10 minutes into the discussion when it became clear to, I don't know, the seven or eight of us in the room, that the brother in the room leading the discussion was very emotionally affected by what he had read in The Return of the Prodigal Son. And then he began to break down. And then he began to cry. And then he began to stutter in his emotions. And then he apologized for it. And then he simply said, this book saved my life. And he went to unfold for us how that spring semester, complete devastation had struck his home. His world was, was caving in. He felt as though the love of God was altogether absent from him. Such was the ruin of his home. But then he reads about the love of God for prodigals when they return home. And in a way that's quite true, what I want you to see tonight from chapter 14 is what you have depicted for you in chapter 14 is of course the call to return, but it is the summons to prodigals. A summons that could save your life. And I want you to see three things from chapter 14 as we close. Number one is a, a gentle invitation. Two is a, a gracious restoration. And then as we flip back even to chapter 13, I want you to see finally a glorious expectation. So first, a gentle invitation. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. He adds to it emphasis and Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Some of you parents might understand the need, perhaps we can say the power of a gentle invitation. It's one thing, we've said even, of course, 
across the way in our study of Hosea, it's one thing to be skilled as a preacher, as a leader, as a parent in driving people to the Lord. Behold the ruin that will fall upon you if you do not turn to God. I frankly think that's a very easy thing to do. I think it's much harder because it comes out of a depth of spirituality that's much more immense in my estimation. To have a skill in gently inviting, drawing people to God. That they would come and say to him, take away my iniquity. And if you know anything about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was not scared, was he, of driving people. But in a way that should arrest your attention tonight, he perhaps was most persuasive, it seems, with his gentle invitations. Come to me. Return to me. For I am gracious. I am meek at heart. I can give you rest. There's a gracious restoration that comes. Look at verse 4 through 7. Simply notice children and students, all the promises piling up on themselves, heaping up on themselves. The Lord declares in verse 4 through 7, I will hear their apostasy and I will love them freely. My anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. I trust that you can't miss how it's trying to call in all of these metaphors, similes, analogies from Israel's time and space about how wonderful, how glorious this restoration is going to be that God is going to effect. I want you to see thirdly, not just a gentle invitation, gracious restoration is a glorious expectation. How is he going to do it? Ensure that his people who deserve death can come to life. Glance back to chapter 13, verse 14. God says, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. It's a verse there in chapter 13, verse 14, that's relatively hard to translate. Yeah, you can send it in a different way with, I think, accurate translations that make it sound really different. And what I think you're wanting to see, and the ESV is capturing some of it here by the way of saying, compassion is hidden from my eyes. He's saying is death is going to come to my people. No one's going to hold death back. I was at a graveside, a funeral on Friday afternoon. If you've ever been to a graveside funeral, they tend to go quite fast. You've normally done the memorial service in a room like this on Friday. And then you go to the graveside, and, and enough has been said. And the only thing I think that additionally needs to be said is you read a passage of Scripture about what is happening in laying that body to rest. And the passage of Scripture I've read for so many years, always and only reading one passage of Scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15. It talks about 
the perishable being sown. That will be raised imperishable at the return of Jesus Christ. And if you know where the Apostle Paul goes, he goes to the book of Hosea. He said, thus, when Jesus returns, thus it shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? He quotes from Hosea, knowing there was a time when God's people deserved death. And his compassion did not fall upon them as he sent them to exile. But he knew his compassion would reign eternally upon his people because a time was coming when Jesus Christ would arrive and those same words would be uttered with gospel hope. No longer will death rule over God's people. No longer will death have a final say over God's people. For all those who return to God, there's a glorious expectation that what will come to you is nothing more than eternal life that is depicted there with the promises of chapter 14. Ruin comes to those who do not come to God. But there is the greatest restoration possible, the greatest renewal conceivable for those who come to Jesus Christ who has defeated the death that our sins deserve. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us this night to know something more about the love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, that we who are so prone to wonder, uh, we are so prone to sin, we who have seemingly in our own conscience transgressed your law countless times without number, even this very week, that by the Spirit's work within us, we would return to you this night and know that your mercy is greater, your love abounds even more than we can imagine or comprehend in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.